Good morning to each of you. I trust that as we sang those marvelous songs together, you picked up on a central theme. Did you? A theme of saving, rescuing, redeeming, and delivering. Uh, We have three chief enemies, uh, the devil, a person, uh, the world, a system of thinking and to some degree feeling void of God, and the flesh, the ruling and reigning principle within, which is self-love. The devil uses the world to captivate the flesh. And our greatest need is to be saved. It is to be rescued. It is to be delivered. And that brings us to God's Word. Namely, it brings us back to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 11. And this great reality that if we are to be saved, if we are to be rescued, if we are to be delivered, we need a king. We need a king of kings, a lord of lords. We stand in need of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are considering on the basis of 1 Samuel the life of Saul. We began in chapter 8. We've covered chapter 8, we've covered chapter 9 and chapter 10. What have we seen so far? Simply put, the tribes of Israel, a very loose confederation in the land of Israel, uh, they decide it is time for them to have a king. And so they demand that God give them a king. Uh, Samuel brings their request to the Lord. Uh, Their request is really a rejection of God as their king. At the root of their request for a king lurks idolatry. They long to be like the other nations. And so God warns the tribes of Israel through his prophet Samuel of the ways of the kind of king they want. And in a nutshell, in a word, he tells them that their king, this kind of king, the king they, they desire, will in the end take away their freedom. They turn deaf ears. They refuse to listen. They are insistent. They are adamant. Give us a king. And so God promises through his prophet Samuel to give them a king. Immediately, we are introduced to Saul. Saul is a man after the flesh. He is a man whose mind is set on the flesh. God orchestrates events to bring, here we see his providential rule, to bring Saul to Samuel. And God confirms privately his selection of Saul to Saul himself. And he does that by giving him three signs. And then God confirms publicly his choice of Saul to Israel. And he accomplishes that through the drawing of lots. That's what we have looked at so far. It brings us right to the end of chapter 10. And chapter 10, verse 27, it ends on a rather strange note. Look at what we read there. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man, they are referring to Saul, how can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. The purpose, or the intent, rather, of what we read in chapter 11 flows from verse 27. 
And in chapter 11, what God does is basically as follows. He again demonstrates, he proves that he has selected Saul as king and he silences these critics. He silences all dissenting voice by giving Saul a resounding victory on the battlefield. And so follow along as I begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. Then Nahash, the Ammonite, went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes, and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh, and the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel, were 300,000, and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies. And they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal. And there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Now our first order of business is this. Get our minds around the content of the chapter. I'm going to give you three markers. Three markers for us to follow. And my my intent, my goal is very simple that we understand precisely what is transpiring in the chapter. Then what we're going to do is this. I'm going to give you it all up front. We're going to ask a question of this narrative. The question is very simple. What does this chapter, how, or rather how, how does this chapter relate to the big picture of redemptive history? That's a mouthful. I'll repeat it later on. Don't you worry. And then we're going to draw a number of conclusions, implications, inferences. That's our order of business. And so we begin with the content of the chapter. We want to understand it. Let me throw out there, you'll find them in the sermon notes in your bulletin, three markers, three headings to help us sift our way through 
this chapter. The first heading is this, picking a fight. That's what we have in verses 1 through 4, right? Picking a fight. Look at what we read right at the outset of the chapter. Then Nahash the Ammonite. Who are the Ammonites? Uh, We need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And to help us to understand this, a map is going to come up behind us. Arthur is going to bring it up on the screen. And I know for some of you in the back, that's going to be a tall order. Uh, The front half should be okay trying to read that. I don't know what I was thinking with the red lettering. That's going to be very difficult for some of you. And no comments on my artistic ability. You can keep that to yourself. What you have is the, the, the land of Israel. Your left, top left corner of the Mediterranean Sea. The body of water in the north, the Sea of Galilee. The body of water in the south, the Dead Sea, connected by the Jordan River. Our question is, who are the Ammonites? We go all the way back to the book of Genesis. We go all the way back. If you grew up in Sunday school, you know this story. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That the iniquity of Sodom and Gomorrah reeked to high heaven. And God brought fire and brimstone upon those cities. He consumed them. But before he did, he warned Abraham. Before he did, he sent two angels to warn Lot, Abraham's nephew who resided in Sodom. Lot fled with his family. His wife looked back in violation, in in willful disobedience to God's command. She looked back because her heart was still back in Sodom. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. Lot fled with his two daughters into the hills. It's horrific. The incident, it's almost unspeakable. But there's an incestuous relationship, isn't there? The son who is born of Lot's oldest daughter, his name is Moab. And he becomes the father of the Moabites. The son born of the youngest daughter, his name is Ben-Ami. A-M-M-I. He becomes the father of the Ammonites. Important for us to understand, these two tribes, the Moabites and the Ammonites, they're Shemites. They're not descendants of Abraham. They're descendants of Abraham's brother, Abraham's nephew, Lot. But these are blood kin. They are related to the Israelites. When God brought the children of Israel, the tribes, out of the land of Egypt... And he delivered them through the wilderness and under Joshua's leadership brought them into the land. He made it very clear. He made it very explicit. They were not to attack the Moabites, nor were they to attack the Ammonites. They were not to harass them. They were to cross the Jordan into the promised land and they were to leave the Ammonites to themselves, the Moabites to themselves. But that did not prevent the Ammonites from harassing the tribes of Israel. And so on the map, I don't know if you can quite make it out, But three tribes settled on the east side of the Jordan. In the red lettering, right up at the top, Manasseh. In the middle, Gad. Toward the south, Reuben. These three tribes decided to stay on the east side of the Jordan. There they settled, and the Ammonites became a thorn in their side. You read through the book of Judges, and repeatedly we read of the Ammonites attacking and harassing these three tribes. At one point, God raises up, he sends a tremendous judge. That judge is Jephthah to deliver these tribes from the Ammonites. And he delivers a blow against the Ammonites. He decimates the Ammonites on the battlefield. But now in our narrative here, in the life of Saul, the Ammonites are back with a vengeance. 
And this leader, this king, Nahash, the Ammonite, he goes up and he besieges, he attacks. You'll see it there on the map, the city in the top right corner, Jabesh Gilead. Why? Of all places, we need to go back in biblical history. We need to turn back and we go back to the book of Judges. We go back to chapters 19, 20, 21. I made reference to this horrific incident just a couple of Sundays ago. But here we go again, and please remember, I mean, this is upsetting. This does turn the stomach, but please remember, these were days in which there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These were days of political chaos. These were days of social anarchy, and these were days of moral depravity. There was a Levite journeying home with his concubine. He's looking for a place to stay to spend the night. He passes by Jerusalem. Jerusalem is located south of Gibeah, south in the land of Judah, He does not enter into Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem is still under the control of the Jebusites, one of the Canaanite peoples. He doesn't want to stay there. He wants a nice, wholesome Israelite city to stay in. So he comes to the city of Gibeah. A man takes the Levite and his concubine into his home. During the evening, the men of the city surround the home. They want to commit homosexual rape. The Levite pushes his concubine out the door. Come morning, she is dead. After that horrific incident, word is sent out to the tribes of precisely what has happened and transpired in Gibeah. The tribes gather as one man. And they demand Gibeah is located in Benjamin's territory. They are Benjaminites. They demand that the Benjaminites, the tribe of Benjamin, hand over, deliver over the men of Gibeah. Benjamin refuses. In the ensuing battle, Benjamin is reduced to 600 men. It's all, that, all that's left. Unmarried, single men, 600. The rest of the tribes of Israel, they have pledged, they have vowed before the Lord that they will never give any of their daughters to these men as wives. And so Benjamin runs the risk at this juncture in their history. This tribe, Benjamin, the Benjaminites, runs the risk of what? Disappearing. It creates a dilemma. It creates an ordeal. The other tribes, they put their heads together and say, what what are we going to do? What are we going to do to ensure that this tribe doesn't disappear from the face of the earth? Here's what we're going to do. When we gathered, we put out a call throughout all Israel that everyone was to gather against Benjamin. There was one city, one city alone that refused to heed that call. Any guesses? Jabesh Gilead. And so they reason to themselves, let's, let's send off a detachment, a small army. They can go up and punish Jabesh Gilead for not heeding the call and dealing with the Benjaminites. And they will take wives from Jabesh Gilead for the Gilead, for the Benjaminites. And off they go. They take 400 wives. They find 200. You go back and you read the book of Judges. Remember, it's, it's anarchy. They find 200 young women elsewhere. I mean, they're very conniving in their scheming. But at the very least, we have these 400. Do you know what that means? That means that by Saul's day, at least two-thirds of the Benjaminites are descendants of those marriages. That means that at least two-thirds of the inhabitants of Gibeah are descendants of those marriages. That means that in all probability... Saul's mother, or at least Saul's grandmother, is originally from where? Jabesh Gilead. Why does Nahash the Ammonite attack Jabesh Gilead? He knows there is a connection, a direct line between Jabesh Gilead 
and Gibeah. And when the men of Jabesh Gilead said, let us make a treaty with you, he says, yeah, one requirement, your right eye. He's pushing it. He's not interested in a treaty. And then they say, well, at least give us seven days to send out messengers to see if anybody would come to our rescue. Why does he agree to that? Why? He knows where they're going to go. And sure enough, these messengers don't go anywhere else according to the narrative. They only go to one place. They go to Gibeah. And when the people hear of what's transpiring back in Jabesh Gilead and this military threat, the people weep. Why? This is kinfolk. This is blood. This is where most of them came from. And you see, Nahash is pushing the issue. Nahash is seeking to humiliate Israel. How? In one of two ways, he doesn't care. Either way, he accomplishes his ends. Either no one responds from Gibeah. Uh, He's heard that they've recently anointed a king, some man named Saul. Either they don't show up, and if they don't show up, they're humiliated, or they do show up, this rabble, and if they do show up, I defeat them on the battlefield, take Jabesh Gilead anyway. Either way, my end is accomplished. I embarrass, I humiliate Israel and her newly appointed king. And so that is his plan, that is his intent, and you'll, it's, it's, it's fascinating, as we read through 1 Samuel, we come all the way to the end of chapter 31, when Saul is eventually killed on the battlefield by the Philistines. The Philistines suspend, hang his body from one of their city walls. And during the night, some men sneak in and they steal his body. Do you know where they're from? They're from Jabesh Gilead. They're tight, these two cities. This is family. This is blood. Nahash, the Ammonite, knows this. He is seeking to humiliate Israel. He is picking a fight. That's the first marker. Second marker is this, delivering a city. Verses 5 through 11. And here we see God's sovereignty. Our memory verse, the verse that we have committed to memory uh, this month, harkens back to Hannah's song in the second chapter. That song, that song, is pivotal for understanding First and Second Samuel. The theology that oozes out of that psalm is the framework through which we inter- interpret these two books. And Hannah celebrates the wonderful reality that it is God who kills and brings to life. It is God who makes poor and makes rich. It is God who brings low and exalts. Why? Because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's. And here we see evidence of this in God's working in Saul's life and in the lives of the Israelites. We see in particular his common grace. We see him permitting, restraining, and compelling. Compelling in two ways, very clearly in verses 5 through 11. First of all, in the case of Saul. What's Saul doing in verse 5? He's with his oxen in the field. Isn't this the newly anointed king of Israel? Yes, it seems that after that incident, everybody's gone home and just picked up life wherever they had left it off and just kind of staring at each other. What happens next? And Saul just kind of yoked his oxen, went out plowing the field. He hears of what is now happening in Jabesh Gilead. The messengers have arrived. And here is God's common grace. Here is the sovereignty of God. We read it right there. It's made clear in verse 6 that the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon Saul. And as a result, Saul is angry. In other words, he is stirred to action. But we also see God's common grace, not only in the life of Saul, but in the Israelites at large. 
Because Saul, what does he do? He slaughters his oxen. He sends out the pieces of these oxen throughout Israel, and he warns the man who refuses to heed my call to arms right now, here is what I'm going to do to your oxen. And so he is, he is evoking a curse, invoking a curse against those who refuse to heed the call. And when people hear this call, again, we see the sovereignty of God, God's common grace. At the end of verse 7, then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. They have a rallying point. It's Bezek. I think I put it up there on the map. Yes, west side of the Jordan River, facing Jabesh-Gilead. And once gathered there, they send word into Jabesh-Gilead. Look at what the message that is sent in verse 9. They said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have. Deliverance. That's the second marker, delivering a city. And we know the rest of the story. Off the army goes, and they deliver, a, they deliver a resounding defeat. They experience a resounding victory over the Ammonites. The third marker is this. It brings us to verses 12 through 15. Renewing a kingdom. Look at the 12th verse. Then the people said to Samuel, and this harkens back to verse 27, the last verse of chapter 10. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? See, this is the purpose of the entire incident. God has confirmed his call of Saul privately to Saul. He has confirmed his call of Saul publicly to Israel. Some have opposed it. Verse 27 of chapter 10, worthless men, they have asked, how can this man save us? God has answered the question. This man can't save you. I can save you, and I will save you through this man. He is indeed my appointed one. I have designated him as prince over my people. I will use him. He will be a vessel, an instrument in my hand to deliver you from your oppressors. Here is living, breathing evidence of it. The Ammonites swooping down. This threat made against Jabesh Gilead. Israel going out as one man and a resounding victory over the Ammonites at the hand of God. He has proved his point. He has silenced these critics. What do the people want to do with these men? Last part of verse 12. Bring the men that we may put them to death. Here we see Saul at his highest. Um, Remember, he's a man after the flesh. But here we see the influence of common grace upon him. Here we see Saul at his best. From here it degenerates. From here it's downhill. He, he, He peaks, so to speak, right here in these verses. And we see a man who walks according to the flesh, the best he can possibly be, according to God's common grace. And after this, he spirals downward. But we see God's common grace three ways, evidencing itself in Saul in these verses. The first is this. It's right there in verse 13. He refuses to exact vengeance upon the dissenters. That's wisdom. That is wisdom flowing from the Spirit of God, wisdom flowing From God's common grace, he avoids what undoubtedly would have led to a civil war. Secondly, what does he do in verse 13? He ascribes the victory to God, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. And thirdly, he heeds Samuel's advice, counsel. What is it? Verse 14. And Samuel said to the people, come, 
let us go to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? Did I put it on the map? Yes, there it is in the region of Ephraim to the west of the Jordan. Why Gilgal? Because when the tribes initially entered the land under Joshua, before they sacked Jericho, they gathered and they renewed their covenant with the Lord. Where? At Gilgal. Now here we are 300, 350 years later. They know their history. They know the significance of this place. And Samuel says, here's what we should do. Here's what we should do. As one people with one voice, let's go back to Gilgal. Let's go back to where it all began when we entered this land. And with, with, with what purpose? Right there at the end of verse 14, to renew the kingdom. Verse 15, so all the people went to Gilgal. And there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. And that sets the stage for what is coming in chapter 12. Because at this meeting, as they renew God's kingdom in Gilgal, Samuel gives his final address to the tribes of Israel. And that's what we have in chapter 12. Did you get the three markers? Did you get your minds around the content of this chapter? Picking a fight. That was verses 1 through 4. Delivering a city. The key being verse 9. Tomorrow you shall have deliverance. Delivering a city. Verses 5 through 11. And renewing a kingdom. Verses 12 through 15. Now the question, I already gave it to you. I'm going to repeat it now. The question we want to ask of this chapter is as follows. How does it relate to the big picture of redemptive history. How does it relate to the big picture of redemptive history? Now, another slide is going to come up. Arthur's going to put up another one. Actually, let me move over here. There's more room for me to see it. And let me take a glance because I've forgotten exactly what I put up there. Oh, yes, coming back to me now. What we have here is something I have, I have expressed at least once, maybe twice in the past few weeks, just, just quickly as I, was, as I was preaching, just to put the seeds out there. In the adult Sunday school, I looked at this in great detail uh, last Sunday morning. And I want us to, to consider it now and, and understand that the, the central theme in this chapter is God's kingdom, the renewal of God's kingdom. And as a matter of fact, that, that is the central theme of Scripture. The central theme of Scripture is Christ and His kingdom. As it focuses on God's plan of redemption, what we call redemptive history, you move even further below that bottom line, the patriarch's promise. I could could have included more there. You go all the way back in history to the Garden of Eden. And there we have the kingdom established. There we have God's people, Adam and Eve, the head of humanity, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's word. They rebel as the representatives and as the head of all humanity. And as a result of that rebellion, man is what? Removed from God's kingdom. Death is to live outside of God's kingdom. Cut off from the people of God. Cut off from the place of God. Cut off from the Word of God. And we see how that plunges man into such depravity in the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And we see that God looks out upon the earth and, and He beholds what? That every imagination of man's heart is only evil continually from his youth. And we see that rebellion come to a head where? At the Tower of Babel. 
And there we have secular man standing in opposition to Almighty God outside of the kingdom, opposing himself to his creator, to his sovereign, to his king. But you see, way back at the time of the fall, God gave a promise. God has his glory in view, always has his glory in view. He has the glory of his grace in view. His plan is to display the glory of his grace for all eternity. Nothing is happening that is not according to his plan. And he gives that wonderful promise in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman. A promised Savior will come. A promised Rescuer, Deliverer will come. The seed of the woman, the king and his kingdom. In biblical history, we move into the days of the patriarchs. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons. In the, the three, four hundred years, they spend insulated in the land of Egypt where they grow into a nation. And there we have the kingdom promised to the patriarchs, the covenants that God made with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The kingdom promised in the days of the patriarchs. And then after the patriarchs, we enter into the days of the judges. And there we have the kingdom foreshadowed. That in those days, that period of three, four hundred years, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Why? Because there was no king in Israel. And we see the depravity of the human heart as Israel stands representative of all humanity. And how God in his sovereignty and by his sovereign grace sends deliverer after deliverer, Gideon and Barak and Jephthah and Samson and Deborah and others, all of them pointing to what? The need for a king. All of them hearkening back to the promise in Genesis 3.15 all of them proclaiming that a king is coming, a deliverer, a rescuer, a redeemer is coming. And so the days of the judges foreshadow it. And then the days of the judges pass. And in biblical history, we enter into the period of the kings, where we are now in 1 Samuel. And we have Saul, then we have David, then we have Solomon. And in these men, the kingdom is prefigured. The kingdom now has a king, a human king, fleshly in Saul, but then a man after God's own heart in David. And what is the principal calling of these kings? It is to deliver God's people from their oppressors, from their enemies, prefiguring what the Lord Jesus will accomplish at Calvary's cross. And then we move from the kings into the days of the prophets. And all of those men like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Habakkuk, Micah and Nahum and Zephaniah and Zechariah. And what are these men doing? They are speaking in terms of that earthly kingdom, that earthly Israelite kingdom, but they are projecting it to something far greater. And they speak of a servant who will come. They speak of a branch who will come. They speak of a son who will come. They speak of a king who will come. And they demonstrate that the kingdom that is in view is not some tiny little country on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. It doesn't focus on some physical temple, some physical structure. No, it is universal. It is expansive. And it includes, it focuses on, it is summed up in the advent of God's own son. And so the patriarchs, the kingdom is promised. The judges, it is foreshadowed. The kings, it is prefigured. The prophets, it is prophesied. Do you see how it is building? It is progressive and a line drawn. Why? Because everything below is the Old Testament. Everything above is the New Testament. And the Lord Jesus comes. He comes preaching. And if you've been here for the past year, you know this. We went right through the Gospel of Mark. And he comes preaching in a place called Galilee. And he declares, Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1, verse 14, uh, the words of the Lord Jesus, the time is fulfilled. 
It is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And the Lord Jesus Christ, our king, what did he do? He inaugurated his kingdom at his first coming. How? By his death, his burial, his resurrection. His resurrection marked what? His exaltation, his coronation at the right hand of the God, of God right, in almighty power at the right hand of the living God. And now he reigns right now. We call it his present session. And his kingdom will be consummated when? At his second coming. That he has inaugurated his kingdom. He reigns right now. Friend, understand it. It is not a physical material kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom whereby he reigns over all who believe in him. It is a kingdom marked by righteousness, his righteousness imputed to us. It is a kingdom marked by peace, that is the removal of enmity with God. It is a kingdom marked by the joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us that in Romans 14 verse 17. He reigns now building his church calling his people from all the nations, building them into one spiritual temple, one people of God, and when that is completed, he will return. And the kingdom will be consummated. And the kingdom of grace will give way to the kingdom of glory. The spiritual kingdom will give way to a material kingdom. There will be at that time the resurrection of the dead. There will be a final judgment. And there will be the renewal of the entire cosmos, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where do we find ourselves at present? Between the two comings. Christ's present session at God's right hand. We call it the mediatorial kingdom. Mediatorial from what word? Mediator. Meaning what? That right now the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, reigns as mediator. He reigns as the one true mediator between God and man, calling forth his people unto salvation, delivering them from their enemies, giving them a living, abiding hope, which is the consummation of his kingdom. Let me read two texts for you from Scripture. No need to turn there. But try to listen listen carefully. I encourage you to listen carefully to what the, the biblical authors say here. The first is Hebrews 10, 12, and 13. Listen to this. When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That's his first coming. When he had done that, he sat down at the right hand of God. That's his resurrection. That's his ascension. That is his exaltation. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. That is the era, the age in which we live. Paul is even more explicit in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 and 26. In the context, he is speaking of the resurrection. But each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. That's a reference to Christ's resurrection. When the kingdom was inaugurated at the time of his first coming. He's speaking of the resurrection. You need to understand there are two stages to this resurrection. The first fruits, Christ himself. Then at his coming, his second coming, those who belong to Christ, When the kingdom will be consummated. And then Paul goes on and he says, Then comes the end. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom. What kingdom? It's his present session. It is his mediatorial kingdom right now. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. After destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign. Until he has put 
all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. When will death be destroyed? The resurrection. And so here we have the kingdom in Scripture building progressively through the Old Testament, through those four key stages. And then coming to fruition, the time is fulfilled in the days of the New Testament, beginning with the kingdom inaugurating, ending with the kingdom consummated, and in between the king's present session, his present reign, right now, this very moment, friend, there is a king who sits on his throne. And he rules his mediatorial kingdom. And when his last enemy, death, is made part, a footstool for him to rest his feet on, that will be the resurrection. It will be over. And he will deliver up that mediatorial kingdom to his father that will usher in the end the final judgment, the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwell. What is he doing right now? He's reigning right now. What is he doing? Paul sums it up beautifully. No need to turn there, but just listen to these words in Ephesians 1.22. God put all things under his feet. That's a reference to his ascension, his exaltation at the right hand of God. God put all things under his feet. And this next statement is beautiful. And gave him as head over all things. To the church. Do you understand that, Christian? That God has put all things under his feet. Nothing moves in this created order, this cosmos, apart from the will of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. He compels, he restrains, he enables. All things have been placed under his feet and he rules providentially. There is nothing that happens on the face of this earth outside of his control. It's wonderful, but it doesn't stop there. Paul makes it clear, yes, God has put all things under his feet. Well, why? He has given him as head over all things for a specific purpose to the church. In other words, all things placed under his feet. The Lord Jesus Christ, our King, presently reigning over all things. Why? There is an end in view. The church. Do you understand? I don't think we do. I know I don't. I wrestle with this. There is absolutely nothing that happens in human history, in our lives, in our experience, on the face of this earth. There is nothing that happens that does not in some way contribute, lead to, and end in the glory of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in His church. Do we get that? Oh, that's not where we live, friend. That's not where we live. We're so terrestrial and earthly thinking and inward looking and introspective and looking at the ground, kind of, oh, shucks, kicking the ground. No, friend, get up and look at exactly what is going on. And behold what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. And behold your king reigning now. And understand this. We don't understand the mechanics. We can't always cross our T's nor dot our I's and put all our commas in the right place. We can't understand it all. We don't always see exactly how it's coming. But we have this absolute certainty that everything works harmoniously. 
Because everything has been put in subjection under his feet, whereby he reigns right now, and he does so with an end in view, his church. Now you go back in biblical history, and this is where, and you know, if you want to argue over this, you can meet me in the parking lot later, and if I'm not there in 10 minutes, start without me. (laughs) This is where many of us get all confused and muddled when it comes to understanding the Bible. We go back into the Old Testament, the patriarchs, the judges, the kings, and the prophets, these stages in the revelation of God's kingdom, and we interpret these stages as, as an end in themselves. They are not an end in themselves. This is a progressive revelation culminating in one purpose alone, one goal alone. So when we go back into the prophets or the kings or the judges or the patriarchs, we interpret them from above through the lens of the kingdom consummated and inaugurated. We interpret them in the light of their end, which is Christ and his kingdom. I've said all that. Why? Because we're concerned with chapter 11. Our question, how does this chapter relate to the big picture of redemptive history? Well, just look at a few verses with me just quickly. Go back to chapter 9, 1 Samuel 9, verse 16. Look at what we read there. It's God speaking to Samuel. 1 Samuel 9, 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Now you move into chapter 10, the very first verse. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, that Saul's head, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. Now into our chapter, chapter 11, verse 9, and you look at what Saul says to these messengers from Jabesh-Gilead. Again, that's chapter 11, verse 9. Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. We'll get there a few Sundays from now. Actually, it'll probably be a couple months from now. But look at chapter 14 just briefly. One more reference. Verses 47, 48, where we have a summation of Saul's, the start anyway, of Saul's reign. 1 Samuel 14, 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Friend, here is the kingdom prefigured. We have a great deliverer. We have a tremendous rescuer. We belong to an almighty king who delivers his people from their enemies. There are two stages, Christian. Three, we're only going to look at two. Two stages to that deliverance. First is this, deliverance accomplished. 
When did he rout our enemies? He did so at Calvary's cross. Satan's power is judicial. Therefore, Satan's power is death. Death's power is sin. What did our king accomplish at the cross? He bore the penalty for his people's sin as he hung upon Calvary's cross. In bearing the penalty for our sin, he has removed death's sting, death's power. By removing death's sting, he has removed the devil's power. He has defeated his enemy at Calvary's cross. That is redemption accomplished. That is deliverance accomplished. The second stage is this, deliverance applied. Right now, his people, we belong to our king by election. All those whom the Father has given me will come to me. We belong to him by redemption. He died on behalf of his people. He gave himself for the sheep, for the church upon Calvary's cross. But the time must come when he actually conquers us. Ooh, the flesh. The flesh stands in direct opposition to our king. Our hearts are fortified. If you've ever traveled in Europe, you think of those medieval castles with the towers and the walls and the foundations. That's what our hearts are like. Strong towers with a moat around the castle. Strong fortifications built on a strong foundation. And our flesh hides behind the illusion of progress. We think we're an evolving people. We think we're an advancing people. Friend, we are in as much darkness now as we were when Adam and Eve fell. Do not be fooled by the illusions of progress, technology, and science. No, we are as morally dark and intellectually dark as we have ever been. But our hearts will hide behind the illusion of progress. And the flesh will hide behind the illusion of goodness. I'm a pretty good guy compared to so-and-so. And in light of what I see going on, as I declared last week, let me declare it again. Friend, any iota of goodness that we behold among men on the face of the earth right now is not a testimony to man's goodness. It is a testimony to God's common grace. It is a testimony to his restraining grace. Give the glory to God. It certainly does not come from the flesh. It comes from on high, but people will hide. These are two towers they have erected, the strong fortifications of the flesh, the illusion of progress, and the illusion of goodness. But our king reigns. And understand this, friend, how does he reign? What are his weapons of warfare? He reigns by his word and his spirit. That is it. He reigns by his word and his spirit. And as his word is proclaimed, the spirit goes forth. And in the hearts of his people, the Spirit convicts and troubles for sin. And then the Spirit crushes our carnal confidence. And then he offers terms of peace. Whosoever will may come. Believe in the gospel. Repent of your sin. And then he imposes a new law as a king. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then he chastens us. Well, he does. He disciplines us when necessary. As a king, not as a king does a servant, but as a king does a son. And he enables us and he equips us to serve him. He restrains us in the face of temptation. And he protects us until the consummation of our salvation, the consummation of his kingdom from all that assails us. 
And now as we conclude, what are the implications? What are the inferences? Let me give you six quickly for the sake of time. And some of you are, are writing at quite the speed there. You're going to have a difficulty getting all these. But you, you shoot me an email, and I'll be happy to send these to you. Let me give you six inferences of this great reality that there is salvation in Israel. Our king reigns. And what, it, what is deliverance accomplished and what is deliverance applied? First inference is this. We give thanks to our king. We give thanks to our king. We are indebted to him for all that we have. Christian, do you understand that? You do not own anything, nor do you have any rights in this kingdom. The king is all the glory. Nothing is ours. Nothing belongs to us. All that we possess, all that we have, is entrusted to us as his stewards, as citizens of his kingdom. And we give thanks to our king. Second inference, we trust our king. He is infinitely powerful. He is incomprehensibly wise. And he is incomparably good. Thirdly, we fear our king above all else. We don't fear the creature. Because in the words of the psalmist, our God is the king of all the earth. Fourth inference. We entrust everything to our king in prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Five, we rest in our king. I have learned in whatever situation, says Paul, I am to be content. And sixthly, we worship our king. Revelation nineteen sixteen. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. O oh, worship the King, all glorious above, and gratefully sing his wonderful love, our shield and defender, the ancient of days, pavilioned in splendor and girded with praise. Let's pray.